Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for June 10th, 2020. Welcome back to another public unlocked episode of Foreign Exchanges. Uh, thanks for checking out the podcast again. Uh, and uh, Or if it's your first time, thanks for checking it out for the first time. Uh, as I've been saying at the start of the uh, episodes for a while now, uh, let me say I hope all of you and your families and your loved ones uh, are staying safe and staying healthy uh, in this time. I'm going to be joined uh, in a few moments by Alex Thurston, a returning repeat champion guest. Uh, Alex, for those of you who are not familiar, is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, he specializes in the Sahel region, uh, particularly uh, West Africa, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Nigeria. Uh, he has been on the show numerous times uh, to discuss everything from Boko Haram uh, in Nigeria to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in the re across the region uh, and the political and social implications of that. Uh, that was just recently, actually, uh, that he was on. I, I invited him on again because there has been a new uh, development in the uh, jihadi universe <laughs> in the Sahel uh, with the apparent death uh, of the leader of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, Abdel Malik Drukdal. Uh, that hasn't been confirmed. Uh, the French military claimed last week that it had killed Drukdal uh, in an airstrike uh, in northern Mali. Um, uh, it's hard to say. There's a lot of cases of uh, jihadi group leaders uh, being declared dead only to resurface at some point uh, later, including one uh, in particular who's a very familiar uh, figure in the Sahel and was related to Abdul Malik Drukdao uh, named Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar. Uh, he's been declared dead, I think, like two or three times. Uh, seems to keep re-emerging afterwards, although uh, he's been pretty quiet since the last uh, supposed alleged uh, death. So I think there is a possibility that he may no longer be among us. Uh, but Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb uh, serves as kind of the through line for a number of uh, jihadi groups that operate uh, obviously, AQIM was born in Algeria and uh, did most of its work, at least initially, in Algeria. Uh, but it's metastasized to the south, into the Sahel region, uh, and has really been, you know, a, a connector uh, in terms of the various Al Qaeda and Islamic State uh, groups that have developed in that region. Um, so Drukdal's death is significant. It has some implications, um, uh, for the Islamist jihadist situation in the Sahel. Maybe not as many as you might think, uh, his relevance to that community and that universe is questionable, uh, at this point. 
Uh, but that's one of the things we'll talk to Alex about here uh, in a moment. Uh, this dovetails, this topic actually dovetails very nicely uh, with a book that Alex is working on uh, that is due to come out this fall uh, from Cambridge University Press. The title is Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, uh, Local Politics and Rebel Groups. Uh, that will be Alex's third book. Uh, if you've listened to any of his previous appearances on the show, you know he's written two other books, one in 2016 called Salafism uh, in Nigeria, uh, Islam, Preaching, and Politics, uh, and another in 2017 uh, called Boko Haram, The History of an African Jihadist Movement. Uh, so he's got the trifecta now and uh, really couldn't be more uh, uh, relevant at this point, I guess, since uh, the history of jihadists in North Africa and the Sahel uh, deals quite a bit with uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, has to, really, uh, and therefore deals uh, quite a bit with Abdul Malik Drukdal. Uh, Alex has also written uh, about Drukdal's uh, apparent, I don't know, alleged, I don't know what the, the, the right word here is for it, uh, death uh, at his own blog, which is, uh, you can find at Sahel blog, one word, uh, S-A-H-E-L-B-L-O-G dot wordpress dot com. Uh, I'll have a link uh, in the show description. Uh, he's written a piece about Drukdal's apparent death. Uh, on the reported death of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb's Amir Abdelmalik Drukdel. Uh, you know, fairly self-explanatory. Uh, that was yesterday. He's got a new piece uh, today, uh, basically uh, excerpting some passages from his forthcoming book on Drukdel. Uh, so both of those are definitely worth checking out, and we'll reference them uh, during the course of this interview. I have already gone on here in the introduction much longer than I wanted to, uh, because I think we're going to have a lot of ground to cover here. Uh, as I said, AQIM, uh, has fingers and a lot of pies. Its role, uh, can be overstated, but it, it cannot be denied that, uh, AQIM has played a, uh, an expansive, let's say, you know, I don't know how deep its role has been, but it's been broad and expansive in terms of uh, seeding and, and even nurturing to some degree uh, a variety of jihadist groups. Uh, across the Sahel, there have been uh, splinter movements, franchises, mergers, uh, demergers, uh, groups going over to the Islamic State, groups coming back to Al-Qaeda, uh, all manner of things. And um, we're going to try to go through that history uh, as convoluted as it might be. Uh, and we'll talk about Drogdell and the role that he played in Algeria, the role that he's played in the Sahel, which, as I say, uh, there's some question as to just how big a role he's played. Uh, and conclude with a couple of recent developments besides the death of Abdelmalik Drogdal. I think we'll, uh, we'll talk about the uptick uh, in fighting between the Islamic State's affiliate in, this, uh, in the Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso region uh, and the Al-Qaeda affiliate or affiliates uh, in that region. And whether Drukdal's death has any uh, will have any impact on that. Uh, and there's also been a story in the news about the Malian army potentially 
massacring a couple of Fulani villages in central Mali uh, that is related to all of this. I don't know if it's directly related to Drukdal or you can draw uh, any kind of link there, but it is certainly uh, something that I think we should uh, mention while I've got Alex here. So uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And again, I'm like droning on here and I apologize for that. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up this introduction uh, and I will get Alex on uh, the Skype and we'll proceed with the interview. All right. As I said in the introduction, I'm being joined again by returning champion Alex Thurston, assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, Alex has a book coming out, as I mentioned. Uh, we think it's coming out in September, but uh, who knows at this point, uh, called Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel. Uh, local politics and rebel groups. Uh, normally, I would have uh, probably waited until a little closer to publication to uh, have Alex on to talk about his book, but uh, event the events of the past few days or past week, I guess, uh, have made it uh, quite relevant. So, uh, Alex, thank you for coming on the show again. Thanks for having me back. Always enjoy it. Uh, so, last week, uh, the French military announced last Friday, announced that uh, it had killed, or its forces had killed, uh, the leader, the emir of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, uh, Abdul Malik Drukdel, uh, in northern Mali. Uh, I guess my first question, given that a lot of jihadist leaders uh, have had multiple deaths, they've died several times, including a couple specifically in uh, sort of North Africa and the Sahel. My first question is, how confident are you uh, that Drogdel is actually no longer among us? Yeah, when, when you and I first talked about this, I was at 80%, and I would say now I'm probably at 90 or even 95%, because the... The French, I think, in this instance, are, are going to be very keen to avoid getting egg on their face, as they did actually in, in late 2018 in, in Mali, when they reported that Amadou Koufa, another very prominent leader, had been killed, and then he turned up alive. So I think they're going to be very keen to avoid a repeat of that. And then I don't, I don't have confidence, I guess I should say, in, in everything that the U.S. government puts out, obviously, or, or maybe specifically that the U.S. Africa Command or AFRICOM puts out, but they did put out a statement saying that they had conducted an independent assessment and that they, too, had concluded that Drukdel had been killed. And then different journalists, particularly uh, Wasim Nasser of, of uh, France 24, uh, has said that he received confirmation from, from an internal source within al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, or AQIM, so now that you have at least three central actors saying that he's dead, it, it does seem fairly reliable to me. So uh, I want to get into uh, the role that Drukdel has played, and uh, you know, over over time, and has been playing more recently, I guess, in um, kind of the North Africa Sahel uh, jihadist community. Um, and I think maybe uh, we should start at the beginning uh, and we should say that uh, the fact that Drogdell was, was killed apparently uh, in northern Mali is a little bit interesting given that uh, he's Algerian, was, is or was Algerian. Uh, he 
was most active in Algeria, and for for uh, as far as I know, up until uh, this French announcement last week, most people thought he was uh, hiding somewhere in Algeria. So uh, we have to start, really, I think, in Algeria with sort of the development uh, of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, which takes us into a lot of stuff. I don't want to go too deeply into like the Algerian civil war. Uh, that's a whole nother story. Uh, but the origins of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb are, uh, a, you know, do lie in that conflict and specifically with uh, an organization known as the Salafist Group for Preaching and Combat. Uh, I wonder if you could start us there with sort of the transition uh, from that group and how it became uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Yeah, and as you mentioned, we could really start at any point. You know, we could start in start in 1830 with. The <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think yeah, no, make, starting with with the the Salafi group for preaching and combat, which is often known by its French acronym, the GSPC, makes a lot of sense. So, in or or maybe I'll start just briefly with with what's known as the GIA or the Armed Islamic Group, which was a. Jihadist faction, very very hardline. Initially, quite successful in in the early 90s in Algeria's civil war at, at attracting recruits and coalition partners, but by the mid 1990s, that GIA group had had become extremely bloodthirsty, killing anybody you know, killing people who dissented within within the group, killing Algerian civilians, making sweeping arguments against. Uh, any kind of perceived collaboration with the Algerian state and, and basically, you know, authorizing themselves to, to kill almost anybody they decided could be a target, including some of their own field commanders and, and members, like I said. And so you had, even as early as 1995, different field commanders within that group breaking away, sometimes I think on ideological principle because they objected to, to the, the bloodthirstiness and, and the killing of civilians. And sometimes I think because they were fearing for their own necks, those kind of dissident field commanders coalesced by the late 1990s into the GSPC. And so they claimed that they were going to, and, and I think and I think that they, they carried this out to some extent, they, they, they wanted to refocus on fighting the Algerian state. They wanted to be a lot less harsh towards civilians uh, and and they were able to survive and, and even to grow, you know, fairly fairly significantly in the late 1990s and early 2000s. The and, and in a way, it's remarkable that they survived because on the one hand, you have the GIA, which which had lost all sort of popular support, um, which had been blamed almost certainly credibly, I think, for for you know gruesome massacres of civilians. So you had that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you had the Algerian government offering amnesties to fighters who were willing to lay down arms. You know, there were certain kinds of exceptions to that. They, they, they wouldn't give full amnesties to people who had, you know, set off bombs or who had committed rapes or things like that. But but it was a pretty generous amnesty. So, so the GSPC had to convince people that they weren't as bloodthirsty as the GIA, but then they also had to convince you know, even some of their own fighters not to accept these government amnesties. The problem, though, for them was that the the Algerian civil war really was winding down at that point. So even though they had a couple of thousand fighters, um, even though, as I said, I think even surviving as a group was kind of remarkable, 
the, the page was really turning and they had over time relatively little space within Algeria to, to continue the, the civil war. In fact, you know, a lot of people put the, the end date of the civil war at 2002. So you had things like the GSPC, which, which then became AQIM, you know, they had some, some major attacks in Algeria in 2007. They had another major wave of attacks in 2011. But for the most part, the, the center of gravity for them began to shift toward the Sahara and, and even toward Mali, Mauritania, and, and to some extent, Niger. The, the leader of the, the Salafist group uh, is a guy, you, I, I, I mentioned in the introduction, you've posted a couple of things about Drukdel's death. Uh, you posted a, a sort of uh, analysis of, of his career and you've posted a few excerpts from your book and one of the guys you mentioned in uh the book is uh a man named uh hassan hatab uh who is the the leader of the the salafi group and was sort of uh miraculously it seems to me managed to survive getting uh overthrown in 2005 by uh by the the sort of bureaucratic structure i guess that had developed in in that organization uh, is now i think in custody in in algerian custody but i mean there was a period where they thought he was dead but he's not um how did that sort of come to pass and the sort of growth of uh, uh uh the kind of bureaucracy within the the salafist group that could um, you know, get rid of its leader internally and, and kind of uh, manufacture that change. So he he was one of these dissident field commanders who broke away from, from the GIA in, in the late 1990s. And then he became the leader of the Salafi group, the GSPC, around 1998, 1999. But really, because it was, it was a, a coalition founded by people who were more or less equals. I mean, you know, at least three, four or five people who had all been zonal commanders or, or very prominent field commanders within within the GIA. So when they came together to form the GSPC, I think he was something like first among equals. Um, I think they were also keen to avoid replicating what had happened with the GIA, which is that you had two particularly extreme and bloodthirsty and tyrannical leaders at the top of the GIA who, who then lashed out at, at anybody who dissented against them. And so I think, and, and that was why, again, a lot of these field commanders broke away and ended up forming the, the GSPC as a reaction to that extremism within the GIA. Um, so I think they were keen to avoid replicating that. And so they did create these structures, you know, this council of notables, these other, um, you know, legal structures and different committees and, and so forth and, and really kind of bureaucratized. And I think that then really enabled things to go smoothly in 2003 when when basically the other sort of field commanders came together and, and overthrew Hattab. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of opaque things at work there. You know, as you mentioned, he he turns up in Algerian custody and house arrest. He, he gave interviews to Algerian and Francophone publications. He was apparently involved in continued efforts to try to get fighters to come down out of the mountains or wherever they were hiding and, and accept amnesty. And so the whole relationship between him and the Algerian government is, is very murky. Another kind of 
factor in all this was apparently a disagreement between him and, and some of these other key leaders in the, in the Salafi group about whether to affiliate to Al-Qaeda. And he was apparently forced out in, in significant part because of that. Uh, although I think because he was against affiliating and others were, were in favor of affiliating. But I think also different sort of personal rivalries and, and competitions within the group came into play too. Let's talk about that decision because Drukdal uh, took over in 2007 and this was you know the, the time when uh, the GSPC pledged itself, I think it pledged itself to Al-Qaeda via... Uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's group in Iraq. Uh, I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I I think it was like a secondhand thing, right? Yeah, I mean, so definitely, you know, I've read different things about the the role of of Zarqawi in Iraq, but definitely he seems to have been a key figure. I mean, it was a long long process. I mean, the way it's usually described is that they they pledged allegiance in in 2006 but and then they changed their name from from the Salafi group or GSPC to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb or AQIM in early 2007 but really it was a long unfolding you know there there was a emissary from Al-Qaeda who came i think around 2000 to to visit them and kind of tour around in their territory there was some initial pledge in 2003 after they had forced out Hattab and then this final pledge and, and name change in, in 2006 2007 so it was a long it was a long process actually so what was the 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 thinking i guess behind rebranding as al-qaeda in the islamic Maghreb? and i ask this because the sense i get uh of drukdel uh, you know you write about him he was a, a a well regarded as a bomb maker as a battlefield commander uh, um, but the sense I get from his time as the, the sort of as the head of or the emir of Al Qaeda Islamic Maghreb is almost like a middle manager kind of guy, like a little a busybody almost. Um, and you know, the, there's I mean, we can talk about you know his his breakaway, you know, his kind of splintering with uh, another one of those uh, GSPC guys, Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar, uh, which was all about like. You know, when we call you, you don't answer the phone and like you're not <laughs> filling out your expense reports. And like there's just a lot of I mean, there's a letter that they sent to Bel Mokhtar with all these complaints. And it's very uh, funny in a, in, a, in a way. I mean, kind of, you know, you, you can't laugh about these guys, I guess. But uh, um, well, why not? The, I mean, you have, you have <laughs> some humor in this. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh, um, and and you write in the again, one of the passages that you one of the excerpts you, you uh, posted from your book. Uh, there was this sort of middle path that Drukdel tried to follow uh, when they rebranded between uh, Bel Mokhtar, who was really about like maximizing violence, uh, and there was another uh, preeminent figure in the group named Abdul Hamid Abu Zaid, who wanted to go really more like the Islamic State route and create a, like an emirate with territory uh, and stake a claim, stake their claim that way. Uh, and Drukdel kind of me seems to have meandered between these two. And at the same time, um, it seems like despite the name change, the branding change, and whatever that implied in terms of the group's connection to a wider kind of international struggle. Uh, AQIM's focus seems to have remained very regional and, and even for a while just, 
you know, on Algeria. I mean, there was pressure to spread out from that, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, um, you know, it seems to have, their, their horizon seems to have remained relatively confined, uh, despite having adopted the, the Al-Qaeda name. I think I think that's right. And and I don't really specialize in, in you know, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and, and things like that, you know, but I've, I've tried to follow it just a little bit. And, and I would say there's a big difference between AQAP and AQIM. I mean, AQAP is often, maybe it's exaggerated a bit, but it's often, you know, cited as, as the affiliate that has really tried to, you know, and, and sometimes succeeded in carrying out attacks in, in Europe and targeting the United States, you know, they, they were, you know, by a lot of accounts, the, the people who, who trained the Nigerian citizen who tried to detonate the bomb on that inbound flight into Detroit on Christmas Day 2009. And you just don't find those kinds of things really from AQIM. I mean, definitely, you know, and, and Belmokhtar perpetrated a massive attack on a, on a gas facility in Algeria, you know, so they could, they targeted, you know, what might be called you know, in, in various ways, like Western interests, you know, they, they kidnapped a very prominent Canadian diplomat in Niger at one point, but you don't really find them trying to target even, you know, uh, France itself, you know, French territory in France, and, and definitely nothing like, you know, trying to attack the United States or something like that. Yeah, they seem they seem quite regional to me, you know, that they that they cared about a relatively sort of bounded zone in, in Northwest Africa. And, and when they pushed territorially, when, when they pushed into new areas, they were often pushing south instead of north, you know, pushing into Burkina Faso and into, you know, one, one major attack in Cote d'Ivoire. But, but yeah, I mean, an essentially northwest African phenomenon. There's a, an initial period uh, after Drogdell takes over and after it becomes AQIM, so like 2006, 2007, let's say, um, before you see the first signs of a, a splintering, and that I think you know is with uh, the breakaway uh, of the, a group that called itself the Movement for Oneness and Jihad in West Africa in 2011, uh, which seems to have left um, you know its leaders seem to have been left in a huff because uh, the leadership of AQIM, despite this kind of gradual movement south. Uh, was still basically monopolized by Algerians. And so, you know, you had uh, kind of up-and-coming figures who were not Algerian, who were from the Sahel, uh, who, you know, got irritated that they were being sort of shut out. Um, but let, can, let's talk about sort of that, that early uh, period before uh, Mojwa kind of split away, because that leads to a whole like domino effect of groups yeah. like separating and we can that that'll be our next you know we can do that as our next focus but um let t tell us about this sort of early uh period of Druckdell's time uh atop AQIM sure you know one one point I should add to my last response is that you know this this idea of being a regional group it, it, it wasn't necessarily the only way it could go because actually the the predecessor organization of all this the, the GIA had you know hijacked an Air France flight in in the mid 90s. They had you know very prominently and savagely killed some, uh, I think French you know monks living in Algeria. I think if memory serves, they had they had perpetrated a, a bombing or two you know in France. So 
um, in any case, yeah, this, this regional focus for the GSPC and AQIM was not the only path available to them. Yeah, in terms of, you know, Druckdell's approach, you know, after he became the emir of the group in 2004, I mean, his, you know, a couple of priorities seem to have been, uh, again, managing this, this affiliation to, to Al-Qaeda and, and transforming into AQIM, um, trying, but I think mostly failing to, to keep the, the jihadist project alive in, in northern Algeria. And as I mentioned before, there were a couple of, um, you know, really prominent attacks. There was, I mean, maybe the most prominent was, was this December, you know, United uh, bombing at, at, at the Constitutional Court in the capital of Algeria, Algiers, and, and at uh, two United Nations buildings there. I mean, so there were prominent attacks in northern Algeria, but the trend line seems to have been mostly that, that the Algerian forces were, were really able to, you know, keep AQIM on the run and at the fringes in northern Algeria. So then you have this expansion of the group or, or you know, more and more ambitious, um, you know, efforts by the group in, in the Sahara. So in the Algerian Sahara, but also particularly in northern Mali and, and in Mauritania for a while and in Niger. And by... Well, I mean, there even as early as 2003. So, so when Druktel was high in the group, but before he was emir, you had this kidnapping of, of something like 32 European tourists in in the Algerian desert, uh, which netted, you know, AQIM or or then GSPC, I guess, you know, a, a figure in in, you know, several million euros at the time. I think mostly paid by the German government because I think most of the citizens were German, if memory serves. But then particularly starting in 2008, you had really the, this explosion of a, of a kidnapping economy in, in mostly in, in Mali, Niger, and Mauritania, um, but a little bit in North Africa as well, um, you know, which netted AQIM, you know, upwards of $90 million uh, between 2008 and 2013, mostly. Um, and the sums sometimes kept getting larger and larger, uh, you know, almost all paid by or, or maybe all paid by, by different European governments. So in a way, he was a mere, you know, during a period of, of fantastic financial success for the group. His role in all that, his specific role in all that, I think, can be highly debated because I think a lot of the. Uh, I don't know what you want to call them, quote unquote, successes by the group in the Sahara were were really mostly the the work of of individual field commanders who who sometimes operated with considerable autonomy from from the northern Algerian leadership. As I said, we get into um, the the two thousand one period, and and Mojwa seems to be the first of these groups that breaks away disagreements over leadership and uh you know the the direction of the the organization uh shortly after that belmokhtar split away uh he founded a, a group that uh, eventually merged with mojwa to form another group called al morabiton uh, that was you very active. To, <laughs> yeah well you know I, I i try to prepare for this stuff uh, <laughs> It's been it has been very active or had been I guess very active, uh, and I want to talk about late in a little bit here. I want to talk about sort of the the scope, uh, but the main region that we're talking about here from this point on is sort of Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, uh, and there's this whole like domino effect as I said of, of like groups that prop, pop up. AQIM created. Uh, Ansar Adin in northern Mali during the the uh, Tuareg rebellion in 20, 2012. 
you have an offshoot of that group called the Messina Liberation Front that, that's created under Amadou Kufa, somebody you mentioned earlier, uh, in central Mali. Uh, I guess, what was, how strong of a role, how great of a role did AQIM really play uh, in kind of, maybe not the groups that like split away in a huff, like Bel Mokhtar, who was, you know, angry because they, they got on his on his ass about expense reports. Uh, but these other groups, especially in Mali, uh, like how significant was AQIM's role and Drukdel's role in particular, sort of birthing these other kind of related groups? Yeah, I mean, there's there's just so many moving parts, you know, as you mentioned in the question, it's it's so complicated. I mean, so let's I guess let's start with Mujwa. Um, and and somebody was pointing out on on you know Twitter the other day very correctly. I mean that that this idea of unity or or oneness in Mujwa's name probably you know shouldn't even be translated that way. I mean the the Arabic term is Tawhid, which refers right, to it's monotheism, you know, really. Yeah. yeah, both the I mean even Tawhid is complicated because it refers right. both to the oneness of God and to the study of the oneness of God. So yeah, it can be translated monotheism, you know and. In French, they say unicité, which I don't even know how you would. Maybe oneness is, is you know, a decent rendering of that. But in any case, um, it, you know, it's, it's uh, Mujwa should probably be known by some other acronym in English, but that name of Mujwa stuck. Mujwa um, comes off the tongue very easily, so yeah. maybe that's maybe that's helped. Yeah, and then I think that uh, they there's been a couple different theories for their emergence. One is is the one that you mentioned, which is the idea that uh, Mauritanians, Malians, and so forth, who began to resent the the domination of northern Algerians or just Algerians writ large over AQIM. The one issue with that, I mean, occasionally the the you know early on analysts would describe Mujwa as sort of the reaction of of black Africans against white Arab Algerians. One issue with that is, though, that that some of the dominant figures in Mujwa were were Arab Mauritanians and Arab Malians who regard themselves as white within sort of the the you know racial constructions of of Northwest Africa. Um, another prominent theory for Mujwa is is that it was something of kind of a front for for narco traffickers in in northern Mali and and you know for for Mauritanian you know Arabs as well. Uh, so it's very it's very complicated, and and it's not you know the schism between AQIM and Mujwa was not at all as as harsh as as the split between AQ, between Al Qaeda and ISIS overall. You know they they so Mujwa broke away in 2011, but then in 2012 they they worked together to to a significant extent in in administering different territory in northern Mali during the rebellion there. So it was a breakaway, but but not with uh, complete rancor and antagonism then as you mentioned there's there's this breakaway by Belmokhtar's unit in uh late 2012 after substantial disagreement with with the the senior aqim leadership you know so disagreement over the management of kidnappings as you mentioned some of this comes across as, as bureaucratic and kind of hr issues um disagreement over the strategic direction of the group and Belmokhtar saying he wanted to to perpetrate more kind of high profile spectacular attacks. Uh, so he breaks away with his unit in in late 2012 um, or is kicked out. I mean you get you get different versions. And then he and Mujwa, who had already been been close um, because Belmokhtar had spent you know 
well i mean he had spent his entire career basically except for a stint in afghanistan he had spent his entire career in in the sahara and and from you know the at least the early 2000s on he was heavily based in in the mali mauritania borderlands and and in the you know sahel sahara as a whole so he had a lot of connections to the people who who ended up forming Mujwa. So in any event, they begin to perpetrate different high-profile attacks in early 2013, um, merge into, in, in August 2013, merge into this Murabitun group named after a um, you know, medieval Islamic empire in the region. And then they are eventually reintegrated into AQIM in, in late 2015. Um, I don't know if this is the place, too, to talk about it, but then you get... Um, you get different breakaway units that that pledged allegiance to ISIS too. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or leave. That yeah, out. no, I think I mean that's sort of the next the next phase of this, right? I mean, as you kind of see, uh, you know, as AQIM creates these uh, new groups in Mali, the Tuareg group in the north, that sort of Dean, and then uh, what the Messina Liberation Front, which seems mostly to be a Fulani group in central Mali, um, they then merge. Uh, along with al Murabitun or what was kind of left of al Murabitun in 2017 uh, into the group that's, that dominates, um, you know, at least on the Al-Qaeda end of things, sort of dominates things in Mali, uh, Jama Nasr al-Islam al-Muslimin. Uh, but opposing them now, and this is something I want to get into maybe toward the end of the interview, um, but, you know, at the same time you have, there's a splinter group in 2015 uh, from off of Al Murabitun uh, under a guy named Adnan Abu Walid al Sahrawi, uh, who, as his name suggests, is from Western Sahara. Uh, these guys are from all over the place, uh, yeah. uh, and that that group becomes the uh, Islamic State Greater Sahara, which now, like bureaucratically, is supposed to be part of Islamic State West Africa Province, but. The actual Islamic State West Africa province is a, a breakaway from Boko Haram and is really sort of still a separate organization, even though, you know, they, they kind of officially are one thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, take us into the, the I mean, I think the Mali rebellion, like the Northern Mali rebellion is a big, you know, point here, uh, you know, big kind of breakthrough for the spread of this. Uh, this sort of stuff into the Sahel. Start us there with Ansar Adin, and then you know talk about these these other groups that uh, now kind of make up the the main you know actors in this space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And the Malian the Malian rebellion is is critical, and I, I think you know for for the rest of my career, I'll be trying to understand what what really happened in Mali in in twenty twelve, and and you know thinking about all the different pieces. I mean, it's extraordinarily complicated, but. You had, I guess, to try to simplify things. I mean, you had you had a series of rebellions in in northern Mali. Maybe the most immediately relevant are, are there was one in 1990, or one that began in 1990, and one that began in 2006. Uh, a key figure in both of those, maybe even the key figure, was was Yara Gali, a, a Malian national um, Tuareg, uh, ethnically from from basically the the aristocracy or the kind of hereditary nobility of the Tuareg. Uh, confederation in, in the Kidal region of northern northern slash northeastern Mali. Uh, Agali during the 2000s had drawn closer and closer to AQIM um, as a negotiator for hostages and maybe by conviction, you know, different accounts suggest that he became just more and more religiously conservative and hardline during the period. 
Uh, I would put it a bit differently that that AQIM created Ansar ad-Din. I would say that that Agali and and some of his allies created it themselves to to serve their own interests. But then, uh, and again, maybe possibly out of their own you know conviction. But but then found a lot of space to work with AQIM. You know, found that they had a lot of interests in common. And and another, I mean, key part of the story is that the Tuareg rebellion began with separatist forces, you know, um, people who, you know, had been frustrated by, by what they saw as uh, the, the willingness of, of previous rebel leaders, including Agali, to negotiate with the Malian government, uh, people from, you know, young Tuareg intellectuals from the diaspora who, who were, you know, coming back to Mali or, or, you know, wanted to start a new rebellion and had been too young to participate in the past ones, uh, Tuareg who had fought in Libya coming back home, um, Tuareg deserting from the Malian army, and Agali had had wanted to lead the 2012 rebellion, had wanted to be the leader of the separatists as he had been in in 1990 and 2006, but was basically denied that, you know, even in in you know what some accounts describe as a fairly humiliating way. So creating Ansar ad-Din uh, may not have even been his first choice. It may have been something that he he felt more uh, forced into doing when, uh, as a plan B when, when plan A didn't work out. In any case, he forms Ansar ad-Din. It's immediately, you know, not just a, a Malian Tuareg force, but includes, you know, quite hardline jihadists, um, basically immediately begins to work with AQIM and to a lesser extent with Mujwa, uh, worked initially during early 2012 with the separatists, you know, to, to chase the Malian army out of uh, northern Mali, and, and to try to create this sort of independent state called Azawad. But then by the spring, you know, late spring 2012, the, the separatists and, and Ansar ad-Din and, and the jihadist camp writ large had, had turned on one another. And, and Ansar ad-Din, together with AQM and Mujwa, um, sidelined the separatists militarily and, and politically. And then the jihadist coalition of these three groups dominated northern Mali until January 2013 when when the French went in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, AQIM, I think, I mean, one of the reasons that um, they're so significant in, in northwest Africa is, is because they were able to find a lot of different partners and interlocutors and opportunities in, in different parts of the region and, and in northern Mali above all. The next move south then is is this um, this move into the Fulani area, and I, I, I do want to ask you about um, the reports. Also, you know the uh, the other story from the region last week, which was uh, the Malian army potentially massacring uh, dozens of Fulani civilians. But I, I will keep that uh, until toward the end of the interview. Um, but there is this this group, the Messina Liberation Front, which was Amadou Kufa's group, uh, that you know then kind of emerges uh, as another Al Qaeda affiliate in a different part of Mali, um, and then these things all merge. And I guess um, maybe before we get to the merger, since it happened before that. Uh, Talk about the splinter in 2015 of Almorabitun into, uh, you know, the, the Almorabitun that remained sort of in Al-Qaeda's orbit and the group that became the Islamic State Greater Sahara. There was a sort of 
Um, and this was during, I think, uh, it might have been during a period where uh, Bel Mokhtar was supposed to be dead. There's been like three or four of those. <laughs> uh, um, I, I can't remember if that, that matches up, but there was this... Uh, initially, it was uh, Al Marabi It sounded like Al Marabi as a whole had de- decided to declare right. for the Islamic State, uh, and then Bel Mokhtar emerged and was like, "No, that we're not doing that." Uh, and so then they they kind of went their separate ways. But t- like, talk about uh, that event, and then we can get into the the other stuff that's uh, happened in Mali. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and just so much to to think about and to cover. <laughs> So Sahrawi, you mentioned before, you know, the, the consensus among analysts seems to be that he that he grew up in, in the Western Sahara, um, you know, and is, and is from there, then came, you know, through AQIM down to northern Mali, was was the spokesman at one point for Mujwa, um, broke away, you know, obviously with with Mujwa and then and then was a senior figure in, in Belmokhtar's Murabitun once once Belmokhtar's unit and, and Mujwa merged. But then, as you said, in, in May 2015, if memory serves, made this pledge that initially seemed to be on behalf of, of the entire Murabitun to the Islamic State. Then Belmokhtar, you know, publicly uh, disavowed that. And so then you get a schism. Um, and Sahrawi, I mean, he's been described to me in different ways. You know, some some people have said, you know, that, that out of all the uh, different field commanders and, and different leaders in the Sahara that he's the most sort of purely criminal and opportunistic. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, and, and I think ISGS uh, by by France and others has been made into kind of the ultimate uh, bad guy now. So maybe there's a particular incentive sometimes to describe him as, as the most criminal of the bunch. But in any case, it's something that, that people have told me. Um, he then, and this, and this built on, you know, foundations already laid by by Mujwa and earlier uh, was really able to carve out a presence for the group in in the Mali Niger borderlands um, you know crossing crossing back and forth across the border forming ties to local communities um, particularly some of the pool which are slash Fulani this this ethnic group that um, as you mentioned also comes up with with the activities and with the jihadist activities in central Mali um, ISGS is the group that's been blamed or, or, or you know, that, that, that unequivocally committed the, the uh, ambush against the American and Nigerian patrol um, outside of the village of Tongo Tongo in, in late 2017. Um, you know, and it's I mean, it's, it's tricky. It, it, it gets into what what jihadism really means at the local level. I mean, I've heard that when ISGS recruits in the borderlands that people don't think you know, or don't think of themselves necessarily as, oh, I'm joining the Islamic State or even, oh, I'm joining a jihadist project, but maybe that they think of it as simply, you know, the best option that they may have for self-defense within an environment that's that's crowded with different armed groups. I mean, the jihadists are not the only ones uh, who carry arms in this region. You know, you have the, um, the national security forces, which, as you alluded to, you know, are frequently accused of, of grotesque violations of, of civilian rights and human rights. Um, you have community self-defense militias, or you might call them ethnic and tribal militias. So, you know, people uh, at the hyper-local level joining are, are not always, you know, ideological recruits. Um, and yeah, over time, I mean, ISGS has been become more and more of, of a priority for France, for the leaders of the region. Um, 
international crisis group just put out a very good report about their activities and and yeah they've, they've seemed to become uh more and more formidable over time i should mention too there was there was a breakaway group um from aqim in northern algeria called uh jundal khilafa or or the the soldiers of the caliphate uh, a couple different you know uh, parts of different northern Algerian battalions broke away and pledged allegiance to ISIS in 2014, but they were pretty quickly effectively crushed by the Algerian security forces. So it's it's really been ISGS that's the most consequential Islamic State breakaway. There was a piece uh, that you mentioned on your blog that, that uh, France 24 did um, sort of looking at the three uh, jihadi figures who might... Uh, I guess succeed Drukdel, although I think you could argue they've already done that uh, as sort of the preeminent kind of uh, jihadist figure in uh, the region. And we've talked about two of them, Yada Ghali uh, and now uh, uh, a Sahrawi. Uh, the third of those is this uh, guy, Amadou Kufa, uh, who is uh, sort of along with Yada Ghali, one of the leaders of uh, JNIM, which is this sort of umbrella group now for Al-Qaeda in, in Mali. Uh, but he started off as the leader of this Messina Liberation Front, which uh, operated in central Mali in the Mopti region. Uh, and that's he's sort of the last of these three to talk about. So uh, tell us, you know, tell us a little bit about his background and uh, his organization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first, it might be worth saying something about just the the Fulani as a whole. I mean, so they're they're a, a pastoralist, you know, historically pastoralist group um, who's, you know, who have, uh, you know, who, who can be found from, you know, Senegal and Guinea and Mauritania in the West, you know, even as far as, as you know, Sudan in the East, but definitely as far as, as Cameroon. Um, they're in a, in a hyper delicate and 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 tragic position right now in in the region as a whole particularly in in Mali and Burkina Faso because on the one hand they have you know become now sort of infamous i mean as as uh you know furnishing recruits for for jihadist groups in central mali and northern and eastern burkina faso and and in niger um amadou kufa is ethnically fulani um, you've had other, you know, somewhat lesser known, but but still highly visible jihadist figures um, in the region who are ethnically Fulani. So on the one hand, um, they, they've become sort of uh, prominent in that sense. But on the other hand, then that's a tiny fringe of the Fulani. And, and there has been um, a really grotesque and unfair kind of stigmatization and, and collective punishment against the Fulani as a whole by... Um, by different governments in the region and, you know, particularly the, the Malian and, and Burkinabe uh, governments and, and security forces. And, and then even in the international media, you know, you, you, see, you see press coverage sometimes falling into this and talking about, you know, Fulani jihadists and so forth. And, and this has also become part of what perpetuates the whole cycle of conflict, because if you have governments that... Uh, practice collective punishment against the against the Fulani, against Fulani civilians, you know, torturing them, summary executions, rounding up all the young men in a village, um, you know, relying on shady and anonymous informants to, to denounce people who, you know, are oftentimes probably innocent. Um, they, they sometimes end up, you know, pushing people to, to join the jihadist groups. Um, 
So you have a really tragic and, and ugly cycle at work. But yeah, so Kufa himself, um, you know, his background is really hard to piece together. He, he apparently was born, you know, uh, probably in the 1950s in central Mali, uh, grew up by most accounts as an itinerant Quran student and, and maybe also a kind of a singer, uh, you know, traveled through the region, became involved in very conservative religious activism as an adult, and then eventually Mehdi Aragali um, formed close ties with him and, and was something of a key figure in the end stages of, of the 2012-2013, you know, jihadist project, um, which ended basically with uh, Yara Ghali, Kufa, and this AQM commander who came up before uh, Abu Zaid pushing from northern Mali into central Mali and provoking this this uh, French intervention. Um, Kufa at that time was was widely reported dead in, in early 2013 and then surfaced, resurfaced in 2015 as the leader of what very quickly became an extremely formidable jihadist presence in the center of Mali. Um, that group has gone by different names. You know, it was dubbed a lot of times in the in the local and international media as, as this Messina Liberation Front, where Messina refers to both the, the the sort of territory itself, but then also to the idea of this this early 19th century um, kind of theocratic state in in the region. Um, a lot of you know Fulani intellectuals push back against that idea and say, you know, well, what would liberation even mean? You know, and, and Kufa has no claim to uh, this historical Messina. Uh, and, and I've, you know, a lot of people have said to me, look, they never use that name. They simply just called themselves the Messina Battalion. So in any case, the, the names are quite contested. But, you know, starting in 2015, you had then spiraling violence in the center of Mali, making it, you know, now the much more violent there than, than the northern part of the country. And then the, the close relationship between Kufa and Agali continued to the point where in, in 2017, as, as you mentioned, you have the formation of JNIM, this, this coalition of uh, AQIM Saharan units, Yad Agali's Ansar Din, uh, Kufa's uh, Messina Battalion, or whatever one wants to call it, and, and Murabitun, um, which has now become an extremely you know, effective and ambitious and widespread uh, jihadist coalition in, in Mali and, and to some extent in Burkina. As we sort of close the book on Druktel, I, I, I want to talk, I want to ask you about two, two things. One, um, I mean, we've sort of been, you know, been talking about the, the main, uh, kind of activity that's going, been going on for the last several years in, uh, the Islamist uh, sphere in in this region, and like we stopped talking about Drukdel like twenty minutes ago, even though you know we're, <laughs> yeah. we're like here to do this interview, uh, and I think that's indicative of the fact that despite the fact that he remained the Emir of AQIM, which seems like in in some ways sort of the granddaddy of these organizations, he didn't have much of a role anymore, and so uh, I guess my one question is. Uh, how much do you see his death actually mattering? I mean, JNM has sort of uh, arisen as the new, uh, at least on the Al-Qaeda side of things, the, the new sort of dominant group, and Iyad Ghali seems to be, uh, you know, the preeminent figure, not not uh, Drukdel anymore. Um, the, even, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that struck me uh, about AQIM is even... 
though, like the political situation in Algeria for some time now, I mean, uh, you know, it sort of died down toward the end of last year, but for, for uh, a good year or so, uh, you know, in like early 2019 and, and even late 2018, uh, was very destabilized. There was the, the, the massive, you know, Herak protest movement that was, uh, you know, eventually forced... Uh, Abdulaziz Bouteflika out of power and things were very much in flux but even with all that instability you didn't hear from AQIM all, I, I, virtually at all I mean there were you know a couple of random things I think uh, but they, they couldn't apparently take advantage of that situation or uh, you know chose not to for some reason and so I guess my question is like how much does AQIM really even matter at this point uh, how much did Drukdel matter or, or has the, the focus, the, the sort of center of gravity really shifted to these other groups? I mean, for the sake of, I guess, fairness, because there are people who, who regard Al-Qaeda as a whole as an extremely disciplined and cohesive organization. I mean, I guess one thing, you know, one view that's out there is that figures like Drukdel matter a lot, right? You know, some people see Al-Qaeda as... You know, Ayman al-Zawahiri gives guidance and orders from the top. Those filter down in, in a very, you know, structured and disciplined way from, from him to people like Drukdel and then down to commanders, you know, field commanders. And, and so some people would say, look, this is a huge loss, right, you know, for, for al-Qaeda. Um, I don't see it that way, though. I mean, yeah, as, as you mentioned before, you know, the, you know, he dropped out of the conversation for about 20 minutes. I mean, you, you never know behind the scenes exactly how the hierarchies work right a lot of it is opaque but but based on i think you know the massive evidence about what's publicly known the key decision makers and actors and even symbols you know of the jihad seem to seems of the of the jihadist project in northwest africa seem to be those three figures named in in you know the article you mentioned the Ghali, amadou kufa and and uh, nana sahrawi so yeah, I mean, I think that Drukdel's death matters. I mean, maybe it it definitely matters on a symbolic level. I mean, now you even have you know Algerian newspapers saying this is the the death of the last Algerian major jihadist leader. That might be premature because I think it's certainly possible that AQIM will come up with an Algerian figure to replace him. But another prominent Algerian Saharan commander by the way, was killed in, in February 2019, um, Yahya Abul Hamam, who had been uh, based in the in the Timbuktu region of Mali. So in a way, Drukdel's death comes as, as part of a string of losses now dating back, you know, basically at least 2013, if not further. Um, Abu Zaid, this prominent Algerian commander, was killed in, in the initial French intervention in 2013. Belmokhtar was probably killed by a French strike in Libya in 2016. You have Abul Hamam, as I mentioned. Now you have Drukdel. So really, you know, the Algerians have been have been kind of taken out one by one. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I and I don't know, you know, I don't see the evidence that he was key to decision making any longer. You know, even 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 by the 2012 rebellion in northern Mali, he seems to have been really struggling to impose his will. And then since then, it, it seems to be other actors who really are the movers in events. You just mentioned this was sort of the second part of my question about his about Drukdel's legacy. You mentioned that Belmokhtar uh, was probably killed in 2016 in Libya. Uh, um, 
again he's he's been killed like three or four times and he like, comes back <laughs> but in this case like nobody's heard from him in quite some time so i think there's a fair it's reasonable to say if he's not dead he's at least no longer involved let's say uh, maybe fun. maybe physically no longer able to be involved yeah um but i guess the other sort of question that i want to ask you was and we focused really on the the movement from uh algeria into this uh, mali niger uh region as the you know the sort of uh, main kind of kind of transition uh but aqim's activities or at least groups and and people who have some connection to aqim uh really has spread out much further than that. I mean, there's, you know, Belmoktar was killed in Libya. Uh, you can talk about, you know, involvement in Chad, involvement, you've mentioned Mauritania a couple of times. Uh, there's the, a, a group, uh, Ansar al-Islam in Burkina Faso. Yeah. Um, they've carried out or, you know, had some activity, you know, isolated maybe in, uh, in other countries. I guess, you know, if you could uh, maybe talk about that, like the scope geographically, uh, of AQIM and and how or again people like sort of affiliated or groups affiliated with AQIM in some way how far reaching that has been yeah i mean and if if you wanted to make the case for for Drukdel's quote unquote success or for AQIM's success i mean i think you could point to a just longevity I mean, if we take the GSPC's founding as as 1998, you know, I mean, they're they're actually remarkably long lived as as a group. And then and then the second sort of quote unquote success would be this geographical dispersion. I mean, you know, to have struck everywhere from, you know, Algiers to 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 southern Cote d'Ivoire. I mean, it's yeah, it's incredible. Um, and I think uh, people would not have expected that, you know, even uh, in the early 2000s. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of you know dispersal, I mean, uh, obviously, I think uh, you know as we've talked about, I think I think northern Mali has become the epicenter. Um, Burkina Faso, it's not always clear to me, you know, what is is more or less, you know, local versus what is uh, AQIM or or you know, and I think it's sometimes tempting to view excuse me, to view dynamics in, in northern Burkina as being, you know, essentially a reflection of what happens in central Mali, but I think there are key differences. Um, but in any case, I mean, yeah, AQIM and, and JNIM have played a, a massive role in what's happened in, in Burkina in terms of the jihadist presence there, as has, as has ISGS in certain areas. Um, in North Africa, I think it's a little bit complicated. I mean, you know, in, in Tunisia, you got... Uh, Ansara Sharia, and you did in other countries too, the, the defenders of Sharia, um, which is sometimes described as sort of a front group for Al-Qaeda. I think it's, from what I've read, it's more complicated than that. I don't specialize in Tunisia, you know, but um, I think actually, and this goes back to your point about about Algeria and the Iraq and so forth. I mean, I think AQIM would have liked much more to insert itself into the Arab Spring and, and into the more recent waves of, of protests and so forth, and, and really was not able to um, in in Algeria or in Tunisia, um, in Libya, you have definitely people who, uh, you know, are, are part of Al Qaeda's orbit, who have connections to AQIM, um, but their fortunes have often risen and fallen 
uh, in different ways, you know, and, and Belmokhtar possibly being killed in Libya is, is part of that. I mean, you know, Libya is, is highly, highly fragmented, but but the sort of Al-Qaeda aligned jihadists or, or people in Al-Qaeda's orbit have been, I would say, you know, tertiary players, secondary players sometimes, but, but a lot of times tertiary players in, in Libya's conflict. Um, there's also, by the way, I mean, and this applies to, to, to parts of Libya, but also I think more broadly, there's a really good article that came out in Harper's a few years ago called Guns and Poses um, by a journalist who traveled to, to a southern Libyan city and, and was looking into Al-Qaeda there. And, and she concluded that, you know, a lot of times it was it was sort of a loose brand and that people would, would accuse each other of being Al-Qaeda. And it was this very slippery sort of label. Um, so even determining who really is is part of AQIM can sometimes be quite complicated. Um, there's not necessarily always card-carrying members. Um, so on the one hand, you have this dispersal, but then on the other hand, um, I think sometimes it got, you know, fairly loose. Really, what what even the label Al Qaeda meant. Looking ahead, uh, and we can kind of, um, I guess take us to the end of the interview this way um you speculated a little bit on your blog about uh potential successors um you know uh agali could be uh could succeed drukdelis the the nominal head of aqim kufa could succeed him um but there are other candidates maybe in-house i know there's uh, uh you mentioned uh, a religious figure named Yusuf Al-Nabi, uh, mm-hmm. who could be a successor. You're a little skeptical of that because typically um, senior AQIM leaders come more from the uh, the ranks of the battlefield types than from the religious types. Um, or, I mean, some people have speculated that the whole organization could just kind of uh, dissolve at this point, and, and, which seems you know, not impossible given that it's been superseded by these other uh, groups. Where do you see uh, things headed for AQIM? And is there a possibility uh, that, um, you know, there could be a new leader of AQIM could actually try to, to, uh, you know, cause a resurgence or, or, you know, get a resurgence of the group uh, in Algeria? If I if I had to guess, as you mentioned in the in your question, I mean, and and based on what I wrote, I I would guess, you know, sort of gun to my head that they'll that they'll pick an Algerian operational, you know, they'll pick an Algerian national from from the operational slash military side, and that it'll be somebody who whose name is not now on the tip of of analysts' tongues. You know, I, I couldn't predict who that would be. I mean, it's definitely possible that they would take the the cleric you mentioned. Um, I don't think that Agali or Kufa would would step into the top spot of, of AQIM because I think that uh, Agali may be quite happy basically where he is. Um, there's also the whole question of, of negotiations between JNIM and the Malian government, um, which, which now both sides have theoretically indicated that they're willing to do. Um, and Agali may eventually want you know he's he's a very complicated figure to understand. I mean, and I don't understand him, but but he may eventually want to negotiate, and I think that part of those negotiations would be him formally cutting ties to Al Qaeda. So I think that would you know mitigate against him. 
becoming the head of, of AQIM. And for Kufa to become the head of AQIM, he would have to sort of jump Agali in the in the hierarchy. Um, and he too may also eventually want a, a negotiated outcome. Um, so I don't know. I, I think they may uh, they may pick somebody relatively second tier or relatively obscure to be the new head of AQIM. I don't think they'll just sort of give up. Um, but I guess then the question is, you know, will the person they pick be prominent enough or, or skilled enough to, to reassert the organization's relevance? Um, I don't think that they're going to have, you know, a major um, opening in, in Algeria. Even, I mean, one thing, you know, that, that made a big impression on me in, in the coverage of all this has been the, the analyst, uh, Jeff Porter, who runs the, uh, a firm called North Africa Risk Consultancy. Um wrote a piece talking about Drukdale's death and, and saying flat out that uh, the Algerian intelligence services had probably allowed Drukdale to to move within Algeria, to cross into northern Mali, that the Algerian intelligence and security forces had probably known where Drukdale was the whole time and, and that they preferred basically to allow the French to kill him rather than killing him themselves. Um, that's all very hard to to confirm for me, but Porter is somebody who has worked on Algeria for, you know, now, uh, you know, I, I think two decades or more, who, who, who really has a lot of deep insight and deep contacts there. So for him to say something like that, I think is, is far from idle speculation. It's a very informed view. Even if you don't take that strong of a view, you know, that the Algerians basically knew where Drukdel was and, and had him killed, um, there's, there's a wider... I think a very plausible consensus that the Algerian security forces are just quite effective at, at, at keeping the jihadists, you know, very marginalized within Northern Algeria. And that's a, that's a, an underlying condition that no individual, I think, however charismatic or effective they are, it's going to be very unlikely that they could change that picture. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to ask you um, as we, we wrap up there are two other stories and there one of them at least is sort of related to Drukdel's death but but uh, you know two other stories that kind of have come to light or have been uh, you know uh, uh, gotten some play in, in terms of the Sahel uh, region over the last uh, week or two uh, one of them is um, you know more and more people writing about what seems to be a new uh, conflict between JNIM and the Islamic State of Greater Sahara, uh, um, you know, which seems to have brought an end to, uh, I guess, uh, well, what was some some people I've seen call it the Sahel uh, exception or the Sahelian exception, uh, where these two groups, even though one is Al Qaeda and the other Islamic State, uh, didn't really. Um, you know, I don't want to say they collaborated with one another, but they, they kind of just stayed out of each other's way in a sense. Um, that doesn't seem to be happening anymore. So uh, um, that was one story. I mean, can you, can you sort of, uh, I don't want to take too much time to talk about this, but, um, you know, where do things stand now in, in sort of the, uh, the relationship between those groups? So for a long time, AQIM has been very conciliatory toward breakaway factions and has always tried to leave the door open to them. And and for a long time, you know, even through into 2019, analysts were saying that there was this kind of, at the very least, 
non-aggression understanding between AQIM, uh, between between AQIM slash JNIM and ISGS that even the groups work together on on occasion. Um, there also seemed to be a bit of a geographical division of territory with JNIM very strong in central Mali, having having a presence in, in a lot of parts of, of northern Mali, you know, Timbuktu region, Kidal region, et cetera. But then uh, ISGS being, you know, having its core heartland on on the Mali-Niger border and then into eastern Burkina Faso. Um, yeah, and that's, you know, now a lot of analysts are saying that this, this has broken down, that there's a... Um, Profound disagreement within JNIM, but then also between JNIM and ISGS about this idea of negotiations with the Malian government, that the JNIM leadership supports negotiations, but that some of the JNIM rank and file or, or maybe some of the mid-level figures in the organization are unhappy with that. And so defecting to ISGS is one option for them. Uh, and that ISGS now has has opportunities to score rhetorical points against JNIM by saying, oh, you want to negotiate, you, you're soft. Um, I had heard, you know, even last year or, or I think it was last year, you know, people saying that um, some of Kufa's own fighters in central Mali uh, felt that he, you know, was was not um, defending the pull, the slash Fulani enough that that, you know, and he, and he has a very sensitive role to play because he doesn't want to, I think, be seen as as sort of a pull slash Fulani figure pure and simple he wants to be seen as a jihadist he wants to present his organization as multi-ethnic but then on the other hand the conflict in central mali has been kind of ethnicized um and and he sometimes occasionally finds himself i think speaking as sort of a fulani leader in addition to speaking as a jihadist leader so in any event um isgs may be trying to sort of outbid jnim as as the defender of the fulani um and and then there's you know a competition for territory it seems so yeah I mean and and, and then some analysts have, have stressed kind of the global picture of competition between Al Qaeda and, and ISIS and have said that the the ISIS leadership has been leaning more on on uh, ISGS to to ramp up the conflict um, with with JNM and AQIM but yeah it's very complicated and fast moving and I don't fully understand it I should say. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, there's just a lot of speculation. Yeah. I think there was some, you know, there's like an article and I can't believe I, like, we could talk about this, but, uh, Islamic States magazine put it on an article that was right. very critical of Kufa and Yadagali. And <laughs> like, uh, you know, it sounds absurd on some level to say that, but that's really what happened. And it was, you know, it's like a sign that, uh, things like this isn't just, uh, you know, a couple of groups running into each other random and, you know, clashing with one another, but this is actually a serious uh, rift that's developed. Uh, the right. second thing I wanted to ask you about, which I, I mentioned earlier in the interview, um, the other story last week was uh, there have been two accusations now leveled at the Malian army uh, that basically they, you know, waltzed into Fulani villages in the, the Moti region uh, and just massacred people. I mean, dozens of people killed village, whole villages kind of uh, raised to the ground. Um, I, the the Malian government uh, says that it's going to investigate this. Uh, I wanted to ask you how much confidence you have uh, that that's actually going to happen, given uh, that this is certainly not the first, these are not the first instances uh, in which the Malian army has been accused of carrying out uh, you know crimes against. Fulani civilians and you you already talked about the the rationale behind that the Fulani kind of get 
uh, unfortunately all lumped in as, as jihadists, even though it's just a small uh, portion of the, the Fulani people who actually, you know, sign up for these groups. Um, on the other hand, you know, attacks like this can have, you know, uh, uh, an effect of driving more people into the arms of groups like uh, uh, like JNM because that's where you go for protection when the state, you know, turns on you. Uh, but I wonder, you know, your thoughts on those reports and whether you think there will actually be uh, any kind of real investigation of, of what happens and any punishment if it turns out uh, that the Malian army was in fact responsible. I should mention that I, I want to say you linked to it in in one of one of your uh, one of your world updates the the piece by um, Modi Bogadi Sise the Malian anthropologist that came out at uh, at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies about the the position of the Fulani in the Sahel and and you know for for readers who are interested in or listeners who are interested in going deeper with that I, I think that's a really strong uh, really strong piece um, yeah I think that. You know, the, the there's a lot of outcry now from Amnesty, from Human Rights Watch, from um, Fulani civil society associations. You know, Tapital Pulaku, which is a um, Sahel-wide or, or West Africa-wide association. You know, a lot of accusations that Malian and Burkinabe security forces are targeting the Fulani, um, practicing collective punishment against them, and and also then that the, that the governments are are effectively looking the other way when uh community-based militias or ethnic militias or whatever you want to call them that, that that governments look the other way when those militias perpetrate uh collective punishment and abuses against fulani civilians so yeah i mean it's just it's it's extraordinarily um you know ugly and 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 tragic and and counterproductive i mean i think you know i think and and, and the dynamics are sometimes hard to reconstruct but i think the basic dynamic is that soldiers or, or commanding officers lash out. I mean, you know, sometimes just maybe out of out of frustration, sometimes I think because they're acting on tips that they get, you know, but but acting on tips uh, opens the door to uh, people basically exploiting the armed forces to settle scores to 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 take advantage of, of the of the armed forces. And, and I think also there's pressure from above um, to, to generate body counts, to say, oh, we, you know, we neutralize this many quote unquote terrorists in this region. Um, so a lot of, a lot of ugly dynamics go into this and no, I don't, I don't think that the gestures toward accountability are, are worth, uh, I, 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 I don't, I don't expect that there's going to be dramatic accountability, and, and I think that's one of the worst things about the whole crisis is that, you know, the cycle, uh, continues to to spin forward um yeah all right well uh that that's a downer but we use these episodes almost always end on downers so uh, that's fine it's in keeping with the spirit of this podcast uh, um alex thurston i want to thank you again for coming on the book uh, which again we think will be out in september uh jihadists of north africa and the sahel uh and uh when that comes out uh, you know definitely uh, you know we can do this again uh and if if you know abdul malik drukdel 
makes a miraculous return from the dead. <laughs> uh, or Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar, we've mentioned him too. He's been dead and resurrected a few times. Uh, any of these guys, you know, suddenly reappear, we'll, we'll definitely uh, have to talk about that. But for now, anyway, uh, thank you for, for uh, coming on and taking us through this, uh, this bit of history and, and talking about what's, uh, what it's likely to mean for the, the region. No, thanks. I mean, yeah, by, by the time the book comes out, I think it'll be a thoroughly historical artifact because events are moving so so quickly. Um, all my main characters are, are, are dying off. <laughs> really? I mean, it's like... <laughs> no, but I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. It does change fast, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much. Once again, I would like to thank Alex Thurston for coming on the program to talk to us about Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and uh, all of its friends and enemies and frenemies. It really, it was all the friends we made along the way, I think. Uh, that's the important message. Uh, and of course, to talk about Abdelmalik Drukdel, who may no longer be with us. Um, who's to say, really? Uh, that book, once again... Uh, is Jihadists of North Africa in the Sahel, Local Politics and Rebel Groups, probably going to be out in September 2020. Uh, I will post a link to that in the show description along with uh, links to Alex's blog. Uh, and uh, I was remiss in, in uh, I think, not mentioning that Alex and I wrote a piece for Jacobin recently on the likely course of foreign policy uh, administration under a Joe Biden presidency. So uh, I will link to that in the show description as well. It's it's uh, fairly pessimistic, uh, as you might imagine. Uh, so I will link to that in the show description as well. Uh, and I think that's it. So as always, uh, thanks to you for checking us out and listening. Uh, and I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.